0: And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick, which is becoming a very common thing for me to say as of late, but I promise you all, he is alive and, you know, probably suffering from San Diego comic Conitis. I don't know. We are instead joined by Marco Picota of Raybox Games, who is a, a longtime client of ours, awesome friend of the podcast, and Escape from Project Reese funded over six figures on Kickstarter and Marco was like, Hey guys, I think we need to do a podcast about this. He had a lot of feedback and you know, on what he would do differently because this is a, you know, a very uh, successful expansion, but there, there were problems. And so you guys get a, uh, you know, because Marco is so honorable and awesome to our podcast. He wanted to to share really what is kind of like our post, campaign breakdown on uh, live. So enjoy this case study. Hope that uh, it doesn't end up with us looking like idiots at the end, but you know, it's show business.
1: Welcome to the show, Marco. Well, uh, yeah. So thanks for having me here again. Yeah. The the Kickstarter did six figures. It did over a hundred thousand. But compared to the first one, you know, the first one did almost 200,000. So I was uh, my expectations going into Escape from Project Reaser, which is the second game in a series, so it's uh, uh, the second game of the Zombie Tango Oscar series. So the first one did around one hundred ninety-five thousand, and the second one now just did one hundred and five. And it's not an expansion; it's a it's a standalone game that's a sequel. So if you think about it like movies, you know, it's like you know Terminator Two. <laughs> or aliens, and, uh, right? yeah, or aliens or whatever. Yeah, I think aliens is good. So, Alien was the first one, aliens, and and it, although it did, you know, it hit the six figures, which I think you know makes it one of the more successful games that comes out. It still wasn't really what it underperformed, in my opinion, and I think by most people's opinion who know know what I was doing, we all expected to do better. So the question is really, when it comes out to it, why didn't it do as well as as I think? a lot of people thought it would do.
0: What made you think that it would perform? What did you think it would perform? And how did you think it would perform? That's
1: So let's talk. First of all, the game is, uh, whoever's not familiar with it, it's a miniatures-based game that plays out of a book similar to Jaws of the Line. In other words, you open up your book and you literally play on the book. So it's got some, and it has some other, it takes a minute to set up literally one minute and the, the the biggest thing the fans have to say is that it's such a fast game to set up they can play it in half an hour or less and so it has a lot of good things uh, going for it its theme is zombies in world war ii which is a fairly popular zombies certainly are popular some people hate them but most people love them and it's world war ii so you got a, a Uh, you know, a good cross-section of people who like that sort of thing. So that's not a problem. The genre wasn't a problem or whatever, but that's that's, that's the game in a nutshell. And it's a campaign-driven game. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. Now, it's a miniatures game, but you don't have to play with miniatures. So if you're a a fan of board games but not a fan of miniatures, you can still buy a $35 version of the game, which is a, a book set, or you can buy a box set for $60, or you can get all the miniatures. So just that's kind of the framework. And that's how I, I launched it, having these three tiers where you could buy it at 35, 60, or 150 if you wanted to get the deluxe. Okay, so that's the game itself and kind of how we set up the Kickstarter. It launched about six weeks ago or seven weeks ago, and I was expecting it to do as well as the first, if not better. Which was, let's say, I was hoping it would do around 200k minimum, and you know, maybe it would do another. A bit more, and would do around 250 or 300. So it didn't do that at all. <laughs> like, like, it was so stressful. Although, you know, a lot of people were complimenting me early in the beginning because it was, you know, it still did $30,000 in the first day. And, you know, it was, you know, for baseline regular games, it did very well or pretty well, anyways. Uh, it, it didn't hit what I wanted in the end. So that answers the question of what I wanted and what I got.
2: I have a question about uh, your email open rates. Did you see a, like a dip in your email open rates leading up to this campaign? Was there any kind of warning signs that things might've not been as you had expected? Uh, There was no, it
1: was unappreciable Dip maybe it was three or 4%. My open rates were at 50% or better the whole time. Okay. Still are.
0: So the, the thing that I'm, I'm super curious about, I eventually want to get into what your community had to say, but first. What I thought was really cool was that. So, your first when I when I compared the two campaigns, one of the things that I noticed was. So I always look at ratios of pledge levels. So what I was told at one time by um, a good buddy of mine, also logistics whiz from. uh, We've interviewed him before, Kirk Dennison. He actually of Peacekeeper Games, but he also works uh, full time for Thunderworks Games now. Yeah. He he told me that. he would expect 10 to 20% of your people to get the base game edition and then 20 you know maybe 30% of your people to get the deluxe edition and then 30% to get like the all in edition that's what when he was consulting with me it varies from those those uh figures there's a reason as to why and right. what i thought was interesting your very first campaign escape from stalingrad Z, you had a really high number of people grabbed the box set. Uh, I mean, you had like 800 backers grab the box yeah. set, and yeah. uh, you know, which I thought was really cool. Whereas, like, the all in or the deluxe edition or the deluxe set was 389, about half the number of backers that backed uh, the for the we'll say like the lowest entry point for the full game. And I was curious as to why they jumped in that way what you felt like worked really well from the first campaign that just got people in because in the next campaign, I'm seeing the ratio is much closer to what Kirk told me where, you know, you had like 300 and some backers get the box set and then 285 get the deluxe and that kind of thing. So I'm just curious as to why that was the case.
1: Well, I I saw it as a win uh, in the new one, that the deluxe set did as well as it did Uh, comparatively it it did. Uh, a lot better because we did 390. So let's say we did around 300. We've since that, because the, in, in the pledge matter, we've done more. So we've done about 300 deluxe sets compared to 400 deluxe sets. So mm-hmm. you want to sell the deluxe set because it's the where you make the most money. So that actually did better. It overperformed uh, comparatively, like by percentage, yeah. while the box set underperformed. That was the big, uh, I mean, in comparison, right? Overall, we underperformed anyways. So uh, the reason is people, I I think people really, uh, the first game, you know, they're still taking a chance and there's less people who know the game. So maybe they're gonna go for this 50, $60 version of the game. And and this one, when people backed it, they would already seen the game out there. Maybe they've already purchased the deluxe set and they actually, a bunch of them regretted not getting the deluxe set. So they, you know, by proportionally, anyways, more people buy the deluxe set, so the, I, it was a it, it, that way. It was actually a, a indication that more people want to get the more expensive, the more mm-hmm. inclusive sets for the product that I'm creating, anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So and that's, uh, that's and, and that's, that, uh, yeah.
0: that's some evidence that your your backers trusted you a lot more, right? Uh, would you say?
1: Yes, at least at least the ones that did back. Did <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, I, I think, I think maybe it's useful. I think everyone's going to want to hear. Well, I'm going to summarize something for everyone. I'll tell you a few things off the hop, which I think were uh, the reasons why we didn't do as well. I released it too soon. Uh, I, I was under a certain amount of pressure cash flow wise, and that's a whole other, could be a whole other topic and a whole other podcast about cash flows. And I'm sure you've done something on that before. Cash flow is very important for a business. You're running a business, you're not running a business, doesn't matter. But if you're running a business and want to make money and continue functioning, you need the cash flow. So I gave myself a buffer. It wasn't big enough. Uh, the Chinese, the manufacturing took much longer than anticipated. And so I ended up having to release this game close to the delivery of the first game. In fact, in unison. almost. So what happened was one of the big problems was not enough people got a chance to play the first game and I was already asking them to buy the second. So, mm. you know, some people did for sure. Some people were super excited. And they had just played it once or they gotten the package. And uh, so one big thing was that my release was too close to the delivery of the first game because they were similar games. They were in the same line. If the second game was a completely different game, it probably wouldn't matter as much if it was a different market I was addressing. But I was addressing the same market. So it was my same client, same market, too close. So space out your, your Kickstarters when you can. Uh, at least until you make a reputation for yourself. Once you got a reputation and everyone knows you're delivering and they know the product, it doesn't matter as much anymore. Maybe, like, I'm, a, um, you might release a different kind of game without having delivered the first game, as long as you already have a reputation of delivering games so nobody's worried, right? So that's, you know, because as as a manufacturer, publisher, I'm working on three games at a time. You have to be working on multiple games. If that's your business model is to make games, then you can't be doing one and then release one and then do another one just doesn't work. doesn't work as a business if you have overhead. So that's one thing. So that sort of proximity. Second thing was that I think I didn't put enough out there. Although I posted a lot about the game, I think a very important thing that made the first one successful was that I had the rules available for Stalingrad Z, the first game, for almost a year that people could actually play the game. And that built up a lot of confidence in the board game, the board game geek thing. People were able to make comments. And other people to play it and talk about it. So there was a whole year of development where we were building an audience, not just an audience through through interaction, but specifically giving them the rules and letting them play the game. And I only gave people like less than a month on this one. So I, I, my strong feeling is that if I had rules for the second game and the space to release it later, I would have had a better results because people would have, started to talk about the game because they actually had a rule set that they could discuss. That's the second big point as to why I feel this one didn't do as well.
2: And Marco, I, I don't know if how you feel, but you might find that the second campaign was useful and that it was a, a marketing device. Because I think for people who haven't backed, they at least know that there is another product that exists that they can, should they want in the future, jump on. So I, I would be interested to to know how things are looking like this time next year, once people have played Z, got it yes. into their hands, are they then transitioning to buy the second game? Because look, they know it, it they at least know it exists, that there's another step, another expansion, another uh, experience to to have. So I, yeah. I think that that would be interesting to, to keep track of. I, I have a feeling that, and because the games are so similar now, which is really smart, n- now that you have your pledge manager open, you have people who are able to buy the first and the second game at the same time. So you sort of can hit a lot of different avenues with, with your kind of post-campaign strategy, which is I think is going to be an interesting case study as well further down the road.
1: Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the short answer to, to that is that we are doing well in the post-campaign section. And the fact that we have both of our campaigns on GameFound, uh, you know, basically beside each other does allow people to cross the crossover and people are doing that. And because you're promoting, so my, my, I have a legacy set of rules. In other words, the rules are a set of rules that will span years and games will be released using the same rules. So it's a legacy type of rules. And those rules, the more product you put out for it, the more it reinforces the other product. So uh, uh, one advice, depending on what you're doing, would be to do a set of rules. Instead of doing all kind of new games that have no connection to each other, you kind of Uh, One method, anyways, would be to create rules that kind of you can follow behind. That's why you see some games out there that just keep doing expansions and keep doing other things because they just do so well. Why are you going to make a new one? I mean, you could do a new one if you want, but from a money standpoint of view, you got something selling. You want to stay on top of it, right? Uh, So that's very true. And one year will be interesting to see. Uh, A side note on that is that uh, you guys tell me what the expected pledge manager sales post Kickstarter what is the percentage most games see at this point?
0: Typically what I find is about 25% uh, increase. Right. So whatever your Kickstarter did, you can expect around 25% increase, uh, not including the shipping that you would charge post-campaign. Of course, of course. Uh, so maybe, I can tell you it's this. it's like 25% of backers would upgrade their pledges or something like that.
1: What I've experienced now in the first week or so in the Kickstarter is I've already done
0: 30%. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. in the last
1: eight, nine days. So... What's happening is it's kind of verifying what the conclusion was is that I released it too soon and that people have had an opportunity, you know, I've had an extra six weeks at this point, six, seven weeks to have played the game. And that has helped drive sales post Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I well, we're 30%, and we're still selling every day, obviously. So, yeah. Now that's actually a really interesting
0: point. I, I remember you also telling me that the first campaign that you did, the Escape from Stalingrad Z, did higher than than like those, you know, what what like the typical average might be as well. Yeah. The first one
1: true? did one yeah, so specifically did one ninety-five mm-hmm. and now it's at three fifty. So yeah. it almost doubled in a year. Wow. So the third thing about people backing is I don't think as many people came back because when they saw this game that was a World War Two zombie game and it like it looked super cool. The artwork was great. And you know the video that we made for it was great. It had a lot of action. They maybe they thought it was a lighter game than it really was. So then they mm-hmm. buy the game. So I don't. I didn't try to represent misrepresent the game. But some, you know, a percentage of people might have thought it was a zombie side level uh, mm-hmm. difficulty, and it was. It's a bit more than that. It's a bit more. So it was. Yeah. I think maybe a, a portion of the backers felt like it was more complicated than they were Mm -hmm. kind of wanted and that i think impacted what we did with the game as well so that those are the those are some of the the three things and the last thing just like any kickstarter so it's really not as excuse one is the warhammer 40k version 10 came out that week so Mm -hmm. that's the oh oh my goodness yeah it was it's it's pretty pretty much the biggest game (laughs) in the world (laughs) when it comes to
2: Board game. Yeah, we saw with some of our clients, we saw a dip in, in war games when Leviathan was released. And we kind yeah, of assumed that right. it was because, because I suppose it's such a great deal and, and for like Warhammer products. So I think that yeah. is having a sort of impact on different war, war gaming suppliers. <laughs> Absolutely. So well, I believe that, that
1: that release was big. Plus, there was um, a Jaws of the Lion role, role playing, not Jaws of the Lion, a Bloomhaven thing came out, mm-hmm. and a couple other big profile stuff. Now I don't know if I can use that as an excuse because every Kickstarter there's something coming out. Like I had to kind of release it when I did. I, at the end, I didn't give myself an option. So I would say anyone releasing a Kickstarter, give yourself a four week option openness to. Like I'm going to redo it on April 11th, but I can go all the way to May 11th. So that if you see something like that's kind of like you didn't, you know, something bad happen, could be economic, like just something mm-hmm. that. Just would take everyone. you can kind of switch it a little bit so give yourself mm-hmm. a, first of all allow yourself to move it like don't get too hung up with one date and, and give yourself the flexibility to do it if necessary maybe you won't have to just do it when you want to do it but you can look at it a week in advance or 10 days in advance you can mm-hmm. and you can make a change so that's that's a bit of advice is give yourself a, a kind of a one-month window to move it around if you have to
0: that's really smart. And let's let's go back and talk about that uh, Warhammer. What is it? Like version 10. So I had a friend of mine who does not have any social media. He has Instagram that he only uses to share pictures of his like mini paintings. This guy who has no social media told me about version 10 and this like codex update for Warhammer that's coming yeah. out. And he's so excited and he's like freaking out. And he, he just out of the pure excitement of of what is happening in that, in that area, I knew about it. Um, and it wasn't from the internet. It was from a phone call from a friend, which is kind of rare, but it it seemed like it was that big a deal. And just for the edification of our listeners, uh, the Warhammer update it's in essence, patch notes, you know, with, it it would be the equivalent of a rule book update in a board game. And there were a ton of, of rule adjustments that made various factions more interesting that leaned into what. They did very well, and it was it was just like very far-reaching. And evidently, it hit perfectly with all the fans of Warhammer. And so at the very least, everybody was buying new books. Millions of fans bought new books, yeah. probably. Yeah. Well,
1: the significance of that event is exactly... Yeah, no, you have pretty much put it down. It was just a basically retail stores, uh, cash flow was tied up in that, and consumer was tied up in that. But again, you're always going to encounter something when you release your game, like you know, that was an mm-hmm. exceptional aspect at that particular day because, on top of the big Kickstarter releases, there was just that anomaly. And I, I imagine everyone knows, knows whoever doesn't know Games Workshop, basically, I think they're the biggest. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Asmodee is huge and Simon, but but Games Workshop's yeah. phenomenally huge. Yeah.
2: Well, what's interesting because I'm currently reading Ian Livingstone's Diceman book, which he co wrote with Steve Jackson, the founders of Games Workshop traces the history of the company and what's interesting is that warhammer was specifically created to sell miniatures because they had an exclusive distribution agreement with gygax to uh, distribute dungeons and dragons and they made money selling miniatures for game masters so you know you would sell monster monster miniatures and individual heroes but they wanted to create a system by which they would be able to sell more miniatures and make a higher profit that's where the kind of bread and butter was. And they wanted to create a game where instead of having individual miniatures going on you know adventures, they wanted to create regiments of armies. So you had to buy more miniatures to to <laughs> fight this game. So Warhammer was created with, with that purpose in mind, which I thought was really interesting. You kind of think that it's the other way around, but it was it was a very like intentional business move, really out of necessity to kind of be profitable as a business and keep the lights on, that they kind of transitioned and created it. So I think that's a good example of how your design decisions could be in response to a, seeing a need in the market or just a, a business need in, in your company. But I think that, that, that's very interesting. And again, it might be something worth thinking about. I know Andrew's been thinking of deliverance expansions. But should he create a dueling game or something else? But I, I think there's probably value in creating a, a miniatures-heavy war game or war-like game because people love those types of games. And there's also money to be made in, in selling lots of miniatures.
1: There is, and you gotta be careful. Uh, when you, I, I, kind of took the middle of the road. Where to play my game, you need thirty miniatures if you want to use them at all. But if you want to create a game that needs hundred miniatures, you're basically going up against Games mm-hmm. <laughs> Workshop. So mm-hmm. it, it, nobody wins going up against Games Workshop. It's it, it's extremely costly, and you gotta do. It's huge. So it it would be a big undertaking. I recommend anyone going into miniatures to look at skirmish games where they can create. 20 odd sculpts, and they can still capitalize on making miniatures, especially now in plastics, they're very inexpensive. Setup cost is high, but cost per unit is inexpensive. So for anyone who's out there listening and asking, you know, my experiences, like I said, what it boils down to is, I feel is to give yourself enough time, lead up time, which I don't think I did in the end with my Kickstarter. So give yourself enough time to not only talk about the game, but share the rules. Get people commenting on the rules on BGG, and get quotes. So mm-hmm. give yourself whatever it is it nine months. Really get people to talk about it and talk about the actual game itself, not just about the concept for the game or the theme of the game. But you want people playing it online, like get reaching out to. It's great to do it at conventions too. But when you get them online, then they'll reply. You'll you kind of get their words written down. And, and then, you know, uh, which I did have a lot of that going on in the first game, uh, I basically, where I didn't have enough reviews, I had a few reviews, I had just like what players thought. And it, it was basically the words from the players. And that's who we're selling it to. And that's who's playing the game. So if a player says they love it, then, you know, if you have one, then whatever. But if you got a lot of them, then, you know, you got to be doing the right thing. So, yeah. so get your players to tell you what they think of the game and use that.
0: That's awesome. And now I want to dive into some of those things that you had you had shared. So you 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 know, you kind of just referenced the release date and that delivery conflict where Escape from Stalingrad Z was released and then yeah. Escape from Project Reese was uh launched, launched on Kickstarter pretty yeah. much the month that everybody was receiving their product. And yes. You also mentioned cash flow pressure. And so, you know, I, I'll ask you, you know, what will you do differently next time? Or rather, if you could do it over again, like, how would you do it differently? But kind of keeping in mind the same type of cash flow pressure, because that's a really, you know, a real thing where a lot of the time when somebody makes a first game, they have a lot more, uh, you're able to take a lot more time. And and even Escape from Stalingrad Z was not your first foray. You know, you've got Leech of the Steel right. and you've got other games that, you know, so you have a business doing this. And cash flow for you, like the show must go on. So you can't oftentimes at least, you know, you can't take a month or two months and just, you know, do nothing because you're probably burning through cash, you know, uh yeah. taking up some resources. Whereas yeah. somebody like me, let's say back in 2018, it was just me making my game. I could take a month, two months, no problem. It's just Nothing gets done, but I don't have to pay anything.
1: Five or six months I had of, of leeway. So it wasn't like if it took two months, that wouldn't have been a problem. Three months, still no problem. But when mm. it went on close to six months, it was starting to become a problem. So my advice, what I would do different is give myself more time. So I gave myself, I don't know, 14 months or 15 months of cash flow like confidence. But I would expand that to, to a year and a half. So 18 months. So make sure you, you kind of... I mean, it, it involves projections on what you're going to sell and all that, but but look at kind of giving yourself at least six months. If you're, if you're manufacturing a heavy game or a game that's got a lot of components, give yourself an extra six months for delays. I mean, you've probably heard this before, honestly. Mm-hmm. I knew there might be delays. I just didn't think it would be six months, but that's what happened to me. It was almost six months. Yeah. So the thing I do different is give myself more space. Uh, just, just, just portion out my, my cash in a way that it, it, it could stretch it longer. I was developing I'm developing two other and I got three other games already that I'm in development. So I was like really making getting ahead of the flow and maybe I would have scaled back a little bit taken more time. Those the games that were yet to come out, maybe I would have produced a bit less art and mm-hmm. just taken a bit longer to do those. Maybe my vacation would have been a week shorter. Who knows? Stuff like that, right? <laughs> so so uh what I would have different is given myself more time and my advice is first of all, if you don't know what casual is, please figure it out. Like go online and f- find it out, learn how to do it, and-, and just give yourself a little bit more time.
2: The average pledge value for first campaign, let's get from um, Stalingrad Z, was eighty nine dollars Canadian. Your second game, the value was a hundred and eight. So there's quite a substantial increase in the in terms of the pledge value or the average pledge value. So it didn't raise as much on on the actual. The Kickstarter campaign, but the average pledge was higher, so that that's interesting. And with the people who did jump in, they jumped in at a a, a greater rate, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So the easy answer to that is just like any like anyone. If you have a bigger pledges, you'll sell more. Period. Right. Don't do. I mean, not. I'm not gonna say don't do a fifteen dollar game, but don't do a fifteen dollar game. I mean, if you want to make money, like I would suggest new people to do a actually an introductory type of kind of business card type of game, 15, 20, 25 bucks where you're using it for marketing leverage and getting experience, but not really to make much money. That's cool. But if you're going to make money, you're going to have to need those higher pledge levels. One big thing was that we had a special double zombie, whatever kill level that included <laughs> both deluxe sets, the deluxe set to the new game, and people who hadn't backed the first Kickstarter. That was over 400 bucks. And we sold, I don't know, how many, 40 of those or something, a lot. Mm-hmm. A bunch of them. Like they all, and, and that helped boost, boost that sort of thing. So whenever you can add... It's difficult fine line like for add-ons. What I would say with this with add-ons, as much as possible, make the add-on as part of your, your bigger set. So you can have, I have a deluxe set. It has 30 miniatures in it and it comes with everything you need. It's 150 or bucks or, you know, in that range, right? And then what you have, I have add-ons. There are the miniatures from the first set. So I don't have to like start up a whole new skew I mean, it'll have another SKU number, but I'm already making it. So now it's easier to parcel that down into four little box sets, which I categorize into like the, the heroes and the beta zombies, you know. So the concept is 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 do a big set and then uh, parcel that out into add-on stuff where maybe the person who buys the $35 version of the game who isn't interested in spending 150 Just might spend another 30 bucks to get some of the hero miniatures because they think they look cool. The overall topic is how do you build up your, how do you sell more? How do you make your higher pledge values? One is introduce a large box set, uh, something that is more expensive. That's going to help you a lot. And then make your add ons, stuff that is in that set, but you've taken out and kind of allow it to be accessible to Mm -hmm. consumers who have purchased, you know, decided not to go with the big set. And then yeah. you're going to add and have all these little add-ins that just going to push it up and
0: push it up. You know, I, I find that the add-on thing, you know, I, I dove deep into that for deliverance, I wanted it to be very premium and I see, you know, many of our clients will have, you know, the, the desire to just make it premium and fancy. You know, the, the, it, it really is something that for me. It's a
1: pride thing, right? It's a pride Yeah. Thing, yeah.
0: Right? It's like, I want to see my thing in the fanciest possible version it can be and you know but then there are also business reasons to to do that and what i what i noticed is that people that back the deluxe edition there are like two major mindsets that people have one of them is am i getting enough value for the money that i will spend so deliverance the pledge was 149 dollars for the all-in and that included a neoprene mat metal coins and i believe at the time that was it. So and and of course the deluxe edition of the game, and the neoprene mat, you know, and metal coins, were 50 dollars $50 for it's like forty nine for the neoprene mat on its own, and then yeah. uh, which is probably a little higher than most you know the average neoprene mat, but then metal coins twenty bucks like right on, and people were telling me that there wasn't enough value in that pledge level, and so we added the acrylics you know acrylic glass standees. And everybody mm-hmm. loved it. You're like we just added yeah. it into that level. I realized, yes, wasn't it were they expensive? Um, they were like six bucks. But the thing is, we had six
1: bucks for how many?
0: Uh, it was like 40, 48 like, or forty nine.
1: Oh, acrylics well, not-
0: and they're kind of tall. They're like they're really big. So you know, in fact, I have one right here. It's just like nice, <laughs> thick, chunky, very, uh, very. Very nice.
2: My baby would like to chew on that.
0: Yes. <laughs> Trust me, he could. And the only thing that would come off is probably the the paint. What I what I noticed was that some people were very concerned with value. And that's that was actually a surprisingly high number of people where they would look and say, I may get the deluxe components, but only if the you know I'm getting enough in return for my money that I'm that I'm depositing with you. I think that's um, a regular
1: thing. I'm, I'm surprised you're surprised about it. Everybody's looking for value, right?
0: Well, you know, it's so, it's so funny. But there, so there, then there are people like me, where okay. it's like, you know, if I'm gonna buy a game, I'm gonna buy the deluxe edition of the game. You know, I've only got so much space on my shelf. I want to play with premium bits, things that are right. metal, make me want to play the game more, and things, you know, plastic and whatever. I want the neoprene mat. Like, I can't play Chronicles of Prime with that. Stupid cardboard mat. Like I need the neoprene mat. I, I won't even play this yeah, game. Yeah, and yeah. Put on a neoprene. That's that's me. And I'm I'm very impulsive. And and is which is probably why. Yeah. I, I always ask my wife if if I can back a game now. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So I, I found it very interesting. This other role that other that others take, which myself included, is I need the bling. And yeah. um, I really think what you said earlier was very smart. It should, it should be common sense you you would you would think but to take the deluxe edition and you split the add-ons into into optional additional buys that people can grab like if they only wanted to get the metal coins that is a really smart thing to do you sh- I, I think if your metal coins are 20 bucks you know wrapped into your all in you can put them as an add-on for 24 by themselves and they right. will sell. Because yeah. there are those people out there just. And you're like making me. them
1: anyways. You're yeah. already making them. It doesn't matter. You might right. as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It, absolutely. It, so I just I just found it to be fantastic. It really interesting as to the people that would buy like the metal coins and the acrylic standees. And for like 20 bucks more, they could have this gigantic neoprene mat. They yeah. don't want it. <laughs> they don't want a
1: neoprene it, mat. It could have yeah. been, yeah, it it just could have been that neoprene mats aren't as uh, the perceived value of them isn't as high, right? Because they are expensive. I like neoprene mats when mm-hmm. I play on stuff. I'm not going to buy it for every single game. It's all unique neoprene mat, but I you will need like a shelf pre-mat. for neoprene mats if you buy enough Yeah, you'll need a whole lot uh, uh, <laughs> But maybe that product just doesn't hold the same sort of res, you know, like, you know, if you were doing plastic miniatures for 50 bucks, you could give 50 miniatures.
2: So mm-hmm. if you want a neoprene
1: mat or 50 miniatures, if they're a miniature based game, you like, no. I'll right. Take... I mean, same cost, close. <laughs> actually honestly less less <laughs> expensive 50 miniatures plastic are less expensive than a neoprene mat
0: Man. Yes. yeah so yeah you, and, and, you know that and the shipping of the neoprene mat like Oof.
1: yes it's, it's, you know so when i do a neoprene mat it's going to be made to be folded it'll be the material that'll fold without screwing itself mm-hmm. up because i'm not rolling it into a tube and then
0: yeah
1: i want it to fit into the same box everything else is going into yeah, that's you know, packaging thing when you-
0: I learned. Uh, I actually asked Chris Birch of Modiphius, uh, because oh, yeah, they have tons of neoprene mats, and they, I was like, how do you guys, and they send out, you know, millions of packages a year. And yeah. so I asked him how they store neoprene mats. And he said that we have the factory give them to us in the container flat. And then at the, uh, you know, when it comes time at the distribution center to send a neoprene mat off to someone, we will fold it and, if it's thick enough, if it's two and a half, three millimeters thick, it will unfold without major creases. If it's yeah. not been folded for you know months. A long time, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the way so, to do
1: it. And there's also some neoprene mats that are actually thinner, but there's a different material that just, you can do that with, so yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll say
0: one of the smartest ways that I've ever seen a neoprene mat used is in Radlands Super Deluxe Edition. They have uh, the what they call the Super Deluxe Box that has two neoprene mats that are inside the actual box. It's
2: mm, Like two right. player,
0: in essence, it's player up. mats. Yeah. And I thought that was super smart. Sean loves rabbits. Cool. <laughs> cool. There were really three more points that I gleaned from what you shared, Marco. First one is same client, same market, give them a break. You've got to target multiple audiences with your projects if you're releasing one after another. Correct. And uh, that was one thing that you said. And you said that you had a weaker performance partially due to targeting the same exact audience, which just got uh, their game. And it's interesting because even though they just got this one and they loved it, they wouldn't get the next one for what, like a year or a year and a half or something. The
1: thing is, they they, they really got it too close together where they didn't all get a chance to play. It. So the ones that loved it mm-hmm. did buy, but mm-hmm. but 80% of the people didn't even play it yet. So they didn't. Yeah. And they're buying it now as they slowly did. Yeah. So that's right. That's That's one point.
0: So let's, let's actually talk about that because I think it's really important. You talked to your community, you have active communities and you do a really good job just making sure your ears to the ground. Was that feedback you received from your community or how yeah.
1: did you figure that well, out? Well, yeah, you know, see, yes, absolutely. They were telling me don't, why are you doing it too soon? But I did, I could, I had to, it was a casual. <laughs> thing. It wasn't like, like I would have totally delayed it by two or three months, but I just couldn't at that point. I waited. It didn't, it, the delay was too long. I wasn't prepared. I had to do it. I knew it was going to take a hit. Like, you know, I was still hoping I would do better, or like, you know, the new people mm-hmm. that would come on board. Uh, but I knew I'd take a hit. I knew, mm-hmm. and they told me, and I knew. But I didn't have a choice. That's why I'm telling you, everyone have a choice. Yeah. Don't <laughs> put yourself in the position I had to do it. Now, it's going to pan long run. It won't matter. I'll sell all the games. It'll sell as much as. The other one, I believe, in the long run, but in the short run, it was really stressful, and you know, I had to rejig what I can do, when I can do it, cash flow wise, for the next six months or whatever. Right. So. Yeah, and and this is
0: um, just another point that is super important to have a strategy when you hit market. Kickstarter, a lot of the time, is the only way that people make money with a board game of theirs. They will uh, put the product up, get a certain number of backers, have uh, you know, print twice as many units as they needed. And then I have all those units sitting in a warehouse with no strategy to sell
1: them after. Yeah.
0: Well, I hear you say
1: that a lot. It's true. Yeah. You <laughs> so, got to keep pushing your game. You got to keep advertising your product. You, you got to work at getting it into stores, get distribution. It's going to take time. It's fine. Just, but don't stop. You just got, it's just persistence and getting it out there, reaching out. And you know, it, it takes years, dudes, anyone else yeah. years. It's not six months. It's not one year. Yeah. Not even two. It takes years. Like I'm, me, I think you know, I've got one game really out there, I have another game that's crowdfunded. And I need another two or three solid games to kind yeah. of feel comfortable within you know the selling process and all that sort of stuff. Yeah,
0: and it's gonna take years. So, yeah, you know, we just talked with Adam of Adam's Apple Games, who had a very successful Kickstarter or a game found campaign for Planet Unknown. And it had like no stretch goals, it had a few extra things that people wanted, but it was like a cash in from all the years of hard work. You know, he spent 10 years in this industry doing this stuff or more, finally was able to cash in. But what I found myself thinking was, he raised $800,000 on GameFound, which is awesome. Anybody listening to this podcast would probably be very happy if their product raised $800,000 with whatever, 10,000 backers. And I found myself thinking like, if you want this to be a business, a a business can grind $800,000 into powder, like super fast. And, you know, Adam, what, what I think Adam has done that's really, really smart is he has distribution and relationships with other languages and other things like that so that he will sell, he will absolutely outsell his GameFound campaign with uh, his post release strategy because it's very well established and you know, that kind of thing. And that's event, you know, Jamie Stegmeier kind of does the same thing where he moves most of his units through distribution and foreign language partners. And he does, he does direct sales, but yeah,
1: yeah, he does. I think you're right. You hit it on the head, but it's a time thing. So yeah, like, don't, I don't, don't, I don't, I I hope you're not discouraging people like, Oh, well I'm never going to be able to get to where I'm selling more than I'm, you know, it just takes time. Like I said, like, like you're going to need to make your game. People are going to play your game. You're going to sell it. You're going to, you know, you'll, you'll 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 share a few beers with your buddies and when you go to the cons and stuff like that. And slowly over time, over years, years, you will start developing a reputation. You will slowly make those connections with distribution and it you'll be you'll be paying. It'll be paying off like you're, like mm-hmm. the guys you just talked about. It just takes time and it's yep. totally OK and normal. Right. Like, think about anything. You want to be a doctor. Just this, the post grad stuff is seven years. So whatever, <laughs> like you yeah. want to be, a, you know, a, a, not even the. I'm not talking about you know the the best pianist. This just a professional pianist. It's ten years, yeah. and you know you might be not you're not even making a ton of money at that level. You know, so it's a lot of time. Everybody just take your time making your game. Just take your time, and, yeah. and it'll it'll come through. You have to be yeah. persistent. Yeah. Absolutely. And you
0: know, it, it doesn't have to start with this intent to be a, you know, a billionaire making board games or anything. Well, and they shouldn't,
1: Nobody's always right. going to be a billionaire, first of all. So <laughs> forget about it. Just, and it just, just, hey, just ask first, me I in think five the, years. <laughs> the intent, I think everyone's intent should be, how can I make this a living? And I understand it's going to be five years for me to get there. So it's totally yep. fine. Totally fine. It'll be five years. And then I'll be able to make a living from it. I think that's a good way to start. Then whether you're not going to make, half a million dollars or a million dollars, that can come. It's totally mm-hmm. plausible for it to come if you're persistent you work hard, get yes. yourself to the living wage level, and then, you know, you keep going from there.
0: Yep. Treat the business like a professional, right? Now, the, the I, so I had two more, but we don't really have time to, to dive into all of these, but I want to at least mention them. Yeah. The first one was uh, the rule set release. You felt like you didn't share enough about the rules, the gameplay. The first game you spent a year doing that, the, the next game you... You know with escape from project reese was only a month so i thought that was something that was kind of memorable for me yeah you know the, the the last thought that i had was actually something that i i asked one of my my counselors how many games am i going to sell due to people wanting to buy it as a result of playing it at someone else's house on their table am mm-hmm. i going to sell like a uh, thousand games or more am i going to sell like one to 500 am i going to sell less than 100 and I was surprised to hear him say, very experienced person, uh, less than a hundred. Less yeah. than a hundred is what you'll likely sell. And I, I I was weirded out by that thinking like, that's strange. Like if I do no marketing, because, you know, I've spent a lot of money marketing deliverance. I want to cash in on all of the buzz that I get from when it hits, which is actually kind of starting to deliver now. And yeah. how many people are going to buy from a, a direct experience of playing across the table from someone else? Well, it's a cooperative game, so all I have to do is go to my friend's house. I'll probably sell less than a hundred that way. But where you will sell out, you know, I have about a thousand games left. We're going to sell through all that stock. I expect by yep. the online buzz, try you know, people sharing games, pictures of them playing, and other things like that in various groups um, right. will make people, other people, want to play. And so I think, as you said, forums like Board Game Geek, uh, Facebook groups, and other things like that. Trying to get people to just engage in those places reviewers. is a really, really smart idea. And reviewers reviewers too. is yeah. huge too. Influencers, people talking, yeah. right? So yes. Any any Absolutely. last minute
1: advice on on that? Engage your audience. Give them uh, something to use, like you know, give give them stuff that's that's useful that they can then uh, repeat it or or share. Right? You want to give them that, and that's what miniatures do really well because when you paint them up, they look awesome, right? Uh, do that, and just be persistent with your game, and, and keep your head down, and uh, don't be discouraged. It, it, just, it takes a while; it, it's going to take a while. And it's, you know, uh, the biggest thing I would tell anyone is: is if they're designing games, just make a game like uh, that's no more like a page long. Just make one, whatever. <laughs> just make it. It's gonna. I made a game like that, if, uh, you know, in an afternoon, and, and anyone can do it. Just make it and play it and share it. Like I did with the Kill, Zombie, Kill. It's, it got one page. You have the what you play on the, the back of the page is the rules. And you can just play Kill, Zombie, Kill. I print that out. I bring it to cons. People play it. But it's a good experience to create it and start sharing it. That's the point.
2: Yeah. So, Marco, it's been great having you on the podcast. Where can people connect with you or find your stuff? Where's the best place to reach out?
1: You can email me at hello at rayboxgames.com. And uh, you can check out my main page. The biggest page of almost 5,000 on the group now is Zombie Tango Oscar, uh, which is a group on Kickstarter.
2: Cool. We'll include the links uh, in the show notes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Put it all in the show notes. It's totally good. I guess we're going to have Robot Richard send us on out. All right. Thank you, everyone. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.